As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. For anyone listening for the first time, my name is Tim Wyatt, and I'm about to speak with my dad, the doctor, author and ethicist John Wyatt. Today's topic is simulation. We live in an era when digital technology is making it increasingly easy and cheap to create fake but compelling images or videos of people, or even entirely artificial human-like personalities. Machine learning tools and progress in artificial intelligence software means we are closer than ever to things previously only imaginable in science fiction. Computer programs which can speak to us like a human, or androids which are indistinguishable from real people. In this episode, John and I discuss examples of this kind of tech already out there in the world, what impact it may have in the future, and how we as Christians should think about these forms of simulated images, relationships, and personalities. Well, hello, John. Uh, Good to speak to you again. Um, Today we wanted to have a conversation about uh, simulated relationships. Uh, And and, and this really was kicked off for me by uh, deep fakes, which I'm sure people will have heard of. But uh, for those who haven't, uh, a deep fake is is a a kind of process by which you can uh, simulate a person's face through computer software so that it looks like they're saying and doing something that they never actually said, often just taken just from a from a photo of that person's face. Um, and these have been around for for many years. I mean, and they kind of periodically pop up in in the in in the kind of public conversation. But most recently, there's been uh, I'm sure some of our listeners might have come across it on social media. Uh, someone on on the social network TikTok who has started making these uncannily accurate deep fakes of Tom Cruise. Um, I don't know if you've seen any of those, John, but they've been kind of floating around and and it's these little it's an actor who's kind of dressing and speaking as Tom Cruise and then they've mapped on Tom Cruise's real face. But it you know, it's his lips stretch as he's speaking and his eyebrows move and the light catches his face all completely flawlessly. And so if you didn't know what you're looking at and you weren't looking closer, you might think this is actually really Tom Cruise rather than just a random person in their back garden. Yeah. So I have to say, uh, anyway, it's good to speak to you, Tim. I'm afraid TikTok is not exactly my um, <laughs> my go-to piece of software, but I'm I'm very interested in deep fakes. Um, you know, the the idea has been around uh, for some years, and uh, when it first came out, you needed enormous computer power. It took it took hours of painstaking uh, pixel by pixel recreation to try to to generate. Um, the, a, a fake video, but uh, as computer power increases and software becomes more and more efficient, uh, the astonishing thing now is that you can do this just even on a mobile phone or a, a tablet and, um, and and produce astonishingly effective um, simulated videos where you can you can get an uh, apparent celebrity to to say whatever you want. Mm. And I think the interesting thing about deepfakes, I'm not a, remotely an expert on on the technology, but as far as I understand, it's the key behind it is machine learning and artificial intelligence, whereby they've shown these kind of comp- these artificial uh, intelligence kind of neural networks, you know, millions if not billions of of videos of actual human faces, and over time, the the software learns how human faces move and stretch and 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 
um, when they're speaking or moving. And that's why when you plug it in a photo of another person, a real person, it can then make sure that the photo, when when it's mapped onto someone's face, moves and stretches. And, and, and so it's, it's actually happening. It's not that there's a, a graphic artist working there frame by frame, pixel by pixel, moving things around, but it's actually a lot of the the animation, as it were, is happening automatically behind the scenes. Yeah, that's right. And um, that also means, of course, that the communication of emotion, you know, so much when we read people's faces, we are um, picking up cues about whether someone feels looks tired or distressed or euphoric or depressed or whatever and uh, as as the technology improves the ability to simulate that emotion in faces and communicate emotions becomes better and better mm. and the kind of tom cruise is a slightly kind of silly jokey example of just someone on social media playing around but we're already seeing i know, I know you've done some research on this that there that this deep fake technology is actually having some real world applications do you want to talk to some of the things that you found yeah, one of the fascinating things is that uh, it's been discovered by uh, the corporate world as a way of generating um, videos in, in, in a ro- range of different um, uh, applications. So there's a, um, a company called Synthesia, which we'll, we'll put the link on the, um, on, on, on the notes to this podcast. But uh, it's a commercial company and... Uh, they're marketing their um, communication technology to big corporate entities. And at the bottom, they, they list some of the companies on their website. I was just going on there, BBC, Reuters, um, and, and, and so on, are using this. Um, and fascinating to go onto their website and see uh, the way that um, an entirely simulated avatar. So you can type in, a text and and this uh, lady appears on a screen entirely simulated and she is talking uh, and, and, and speaking the text and so uh, corporate um, executives use this as a way of communicating with their workforce and they can uh, instantaneously translate it into uh, tens if not hundreds of different languages and, and, and so on. Mm. And there's this sort of kind of dizzying array of applications. I mean, some of their case studies were things like, um, you know, they filmed David Beckham in in real life doing a kind of a public health advert about malaria, but he was obviously only speaking in English. And so rather than just adding subtitles for different languages, they just recorded an actor speaking those actual languages and then just deep faked his face so that it, his lips and stuff were moving, express, actually expressing... Uh, the the sound you know the shapes that you make to to speak in those languages and so suddenly you have David Beckham not being kind of crudely dubbed where you can see that the 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 voice and the lips don't match up but actually it looks like David Beckham now can speak Mandarin or or uh, or Spanish or, or whatever other language they they dubbed it into and you can see as the technology gets better you start to say well why do we need human artists at all or human mm. actors um you know, producers often complain that the artists need 10 different takes and didn't get it quite right. This way, I can make my actor say exactly what I want and give it exactly the right kind of nuances. So you could imagine people looking at kind of fundraising appeals or charity appeals and and working out, you know, that actually if we tweak slightly the emotional nuances of this AI, it's going to make a much more appealing... Uh, request a much more effective request than using a human actor. And I think you know some of this we could clearly see some some positive benefits you know it makes it much cheaper to produce videos in other languages for example and all that kind of stuff but I guess what we want to talk about, I think, is some of the the more challenging applications of that. And you've been reading and applying some some of the the theories of a French philosopher writing some time ago. Do you want to talk a bit, introduce some of that? Yeah. So um, for, for quite a long time, I've been fascinated by the work of um, the French postmodern philosopher Jean Baudrillard, um, who. Um, was writing back in the 70s and 80s and, and was quite well known in that era. And, and 
he wrote a, a a work called Simulacra and Simulation, um, which became quite a cult work at the time, and in fact, I think was uh, there's a reference to it in in the Matrix film, isn't there? Mm. Um, you mentioned that, didn't you? Yeah, I think it's right at the beginning. Um, Neo, the main character, uh, is. Um, I can't remember exactly, but it's something like he picks this book off the shelf and inside is is a critical piece of information that kind of is the first bit on the rabbit hole that leads him to realising that his world is actually, the Matrix is actually, spoiler alert if you haven't seen the film, it's not real, is a simulation that he's living in um, and it's all in his head. Um, and it's a kind of a nod by the filmmakers, uh, the Wachowski uh, siblings, who, who were kind of very influenced in the writing of that film by some of Baudrillard's thinking about simulation. That's right. Uh, so the fascinating thing about uh, Baudrillard is that he was writing, of course, back in the 1980s when all this digital technology w- was non-existent. And, but he was already seeing the way that um, representations of reality were increasingly taking on uh, greater significance than the reality itself. And he was fascinated about semiotics the um, philosophy of signs and maps and and, and so on and uh, he the ex- sort of examples he latched on to was uh, reality tv you know which was which was taking off at that time and and the fact that you could uh, it wasn't clear whether the relationships that you were seeing expressed in on the television were actually real or whether they were simulated and and there was that famous film the truman show wasn't that Mm. that uh do you want to mention that yeah that's another kind of another 1990s around around the same time a similar time to the matrix um again i'm sure many people have watched it if you haven't i recommend it it's um it's basically uh as reality tv was taking off it was kind of riffing on this and so truman the played by jim carrey is he lives what he believes is an ordinary life on a little island off the coast of of America somewhere. But what he doesn't realise is that there's cameras everywhere and everyone who he thinks are his girlfriend, his mother, his co-workers are all actors. And this has all been filmed and broadcast 24 hours a day as a like, kind of immersive 30-year-long reality TV project. And, you know, and so he, he gradually unpicks that his reality is not what it seems. And... Uh, and then he has a kind of decision to make once he realizes, like, is he happier living in the the fake reality TV world, or does he want to break out of the studio and find something more real, more authentic? Um, yeah, it's very interesting. And of course, it, this has been a uh, a feature of science fiction writing. Um, Philip K. Dick, um, in particular, his novels uh, constantly uh, question this uh, question of what is real, what is a replicant. He he, um, so he he was really one of the first people who developed this idea of replicants who were humanoid robots, but who were so brilliantly constructed that you couldn't tell the difference as to whether it was a real human being, um, and that there were replicants moving around us in society, and therefore then there were people, police, who were hired to to track down the replicants and kill them, and this was the the plot that led to the film The Blade Runner. Uh, but in a brilliant twist, Philip K. Dick said that the replicants were actually implanted with false memories so that even the replicants didn't know they were a replicant. And and in one of his uh, famous short stories, uh, it's all told from the vantage point of this guy who thinks that he's hunting down replicants. And it's only towards the end he, he, he dawns on the fact that actually he is a replicant himself and they're hunting for him. And it's it's brilliantly done, and it's this constant confusion between what is real, what's what's simulated, and so on. And and so Baudrillard is is reflecting on this from a philosophical point of view, and um, he he came up with the idea uh, that there were different stages in the development of uh, simulation, which became increasingly detached from reality, and the, and the devolt- ultimately you get what he called the simulacra and. Uh, uh, the simulacrum, which is which is completely divorced from reality, and and in his his work in 1981, simulacra and simulation, he he talks about what he called the procession of the simulacra, you know, and uh, unpicking Baudrillard is is desperately difficult, and I think I've ended up with a, a probably a, a deeply simplified and Baudrillardized version of his, his writing is very dense and uh, 
opaque at many points. But but he, he comes up with these four um, phases, uh, which I, I found extremely helpful and interesting when it comes to thinking about di digital simulation. So almost what you're kind of saying is is Baudrillard was writing this in the 70s and 80s, you know, and he, at that time it was about he was kind of the applications such as there are were around things like advertising and reality television. But now 40 years later, with the advent of digital technology, such as the point, you know, we've got today with things like deep fakes and, and artificial intelligence, you're now saying that the technology is actually catching up to some of his his theorizing and we can actually use his framework to try and understand better the different ways in which technology can simulate relationship. Yes, and I do think that the, the, the question of simulation and how we think of simulation um, is now becoming extraordinarily important. And, and, you know, from a Christian point of view, I think the theology of simulation, and, and, and to be honest, I think there's a huge gap here. There's a gaping hole that Christian thinkers and theologians and philosophers have, have actually rarely grappled with this question of, of how we think of, of, of a simulation. Um, there's a, a line, there's a, a um, television series called Westworld on American television, um, which is, which is actually based on an older science fiction novel, but it, it, it's it's all set on the idea of a um, a fantasy land where human beings can go and live out their fantasies in a world which is completely run by humanoid robots, and you can do whatever you want with these ro humanoid robots. And surprise, surprise, it turns out that what most human beings want to do with robots is either to kill them and fight them, or else to have sex with them. I mean, why? What else would you possibly want to do with a robot? But and and I have to say, it's a very tacky... <laughs> I'm not necessarily recommending watching Westworld for those who have weak stomachs, but but there's a there's a line in it early on in one of the episodes when a, a human being has arrived on in this fantasy uh, land and this beautiful woman comes up to him and, and basically asks him if there's anything she can do for him. And the, this, the visitor looks at her and stares at her and says are you real or are you one of those? And she says to him, if you can't tell, does it matter? And I think that fundamental question, if you can't tell the difference between reality and a brilliant simulation, does it really matter? Uh, I, I think that that is a question which haunts me because I think it's a question we're going to have to really grapple with um, as digital simulations become more and more effective. Mm. And if we're thinking here in 2021, seeing um, these kind of deep fakes of celebrity videos as simply the the very, very early, early first fruits of what machine learning and, and computer power is going to do, I, I think you're right that over the next 50 years, Christians are going to be confronted with that question of, if you can't tell, does it matter again and again and again? And I think a lot of us maybe might instinctively say, yes, it does matter. But then the immediate rejoinder from the world, from society, which is embracing this technology, will be why. And it's really critically important that we come up with a really compelling and uh, thought through answer to why it does matter. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, th I think many people have a sort of gut feeling that there's something wrong about this uh, and sometimes the word creepy is used um, you know for instance and there's another bit of the technology where you can take an old photograph you put it through these AI programs and the photograph comes to life suddenly the person is moving smiling uh, blinking and um, and people say you know it's like that's my dead son and he's come alive um, but and, but then often the intuitive response is there's something creepy about this um, but trying to disentangle that, just having an intuition that something is creepy is not good enough. If, on the other hand, people are saying, yeah, but it saves so much money and here, look, here are the positive outcomes. Um, so you need a stronger reason to say we shouldn't be doing this from just 
it does it seems creepy and you know of course there are many examples in the past where christians have opposed television have opposed even the radio or um, steam engine or cars or whatever it is the latest technology and then lo and behold give it another 20 years and christians have just rolled over and said oh this is just okay this is fine no problem So let's go back to Baudrillard then. Uh, what, what's the first phase that he explains when it comes to simulation? So he, he starts off by saying that in the first order, um, the simulation is, a, is an accurate reflection of a profound underlying reality. He says the image is a good appearance and the representation is of the sacramental order. Um, so it's interesting that he uses this word. He, he wasn't a, a Christian, certainly in any orthodox sense of the word as far as i know but he he says that when the representation is a good appearance it, it it's actually sacramental it has it has some sacramental value to it um and, and it's interesting to unpick that and think from a christian point of view a sacrament is a is a visual representation of a hidden of a hidden reality a hidden spiritual reality and and we do understand that those kind of representations, if you just think of the, of the Holy Communion, the, 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 what the bread and the wine, it, it, it's a sacrament, it's a representation of something deeply profound and significant, and it's something valuable, it's, it's, a, it's a positive thing. Mm. Another example people often use is the sacrament of baptism, you know, where Christians are lowered into the water and raised out of it. And, you know, you could say... It's, it's just a metaphor. Uh, it's just a metaphor for being washed of your sins and kind of raised in new life. But actually, I think the kind of orthodox Christian understanding is that is that it's not that baptism is literally cleansing you. And it's not that if you die unbaptized, you go to hell. But actually, it's not simply just an interesting kind of picture. It's it's a it's an analogous. It's it's um it's as you say, it's a it's a visible picture of, a, of an invisible reality that is actually happening to you in a spiritual sense. Yes, and what's more, we need those kind of sacraments. We need, that's why Jesus institutes the breaking of bread, the Holy Communion, because he says, this is my body broken for you. And, and that just having this in our heads as a sort of theoretical concept, because we are physical beings, we need these physical representations. We need something tangible. Uh, that and, and so representation in itself can have a very positive spiritual impact and of course if you take that into the digital world then in in what way might these um digital representations of people that we're exposed to in what sense might they have a sacramental aspect in what sense might they be a positive representation of reality hmm. so to use a kind of very banal example if i have a a zoom call with you um, what I'm looking at on my screen looks like it's your face and it's moving and it's responding to me and making noises. But in truth, I know at the back of my head, it's actually just a collection of pixels on my laptop screen and your actual face is, is 80 miles away in London. But it's actually because it's such a faithful simulation of your actual face that when we can have a conversation through the computer and it's profound and meaningful and you can have genuine human interaction and, and conversation. Yeah. And, and, you know, we've all had this experience, haven't we? I mean, many, many Christians have of throughout the pandemic. So, you know, at All Souls, we used to have a twice every two weeks prayer gathering. Um, but shortly after the pandemic started, a, a daily Zoom prayer meeting was started at All Souls, which is still going on now. And I've attended many of those, did it this morning. And what was happening was entirely digital, um, and, it, and it was a flow of bits of information down across the internet and the recreation of audio and, and, and video images and so on. And yet, you know, we, we all of us who've been part of this daily prayer meeting feel it's a very significant thing of seeing familiar faces, hearing familiar voices, praying together, interceding together, uh, celebrating answers to prayer together. Um, so this, this is a, 
a positive, a sacramental representation of, of the real relationships that are going on there. And interestingly, the digital world has fed it. The, the relationships have become stronger. The prayer has become more meaningful precisely because of the existence of the digital representations. Mm. And as we discussed in last our previous episode about church online, um, there are many millions of Christians, billions of Christians around the world who, because of the pandemic, have had to take part in services that have been online, live streamed or on Zoom or YouTube or whatever. And while they're not the same as meeting physically in person, you know, they are a means of grace. People have met with God. They've met with each other. They've genuinely worshipped. They've really prayed. Uh, they're simulatory in some sense, but there's also a, a strain of authenticity and human about them as well. That's right. So, so I think, you know, right from the beginning, we say, therefore, that the, this, this simplistic idea that digital representations are somehow always evil, that that's anything that is not authentically physical is 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 evil and deceptive it is clearly wrong and and um that's why this seeing the positive value of of uh of how digital relationships can develop and i mean just another example i've had a very moving experience over the last months of uh, having regular weekly meetings with of bioethics seminars with christian medics around the world literally in countries on my screen I've seen you know there's my friend from um, Kenya there's from from Indonesia and from Papua New Guinea and from um, Brazil and from India and so on and um, the truth is that the, these friendships have grown entirely um, digitally we, I don't know these people I've never met them in the flesh and yet over the months where we've been meeting every week there's actually been a very profound um, relationship that's developed, and and we've wept together, we've shared together, we've prayed together, we've 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 really talked about our own personal issues, and and um, and this has entirely come out of this digital representation. So it's just another example, I think, of how the very positive ways that we need to grasp as Christians to see the very positive aspects of of this these digital simulations. So what's, that's phase one. What, what does Baudrillard suggest is the second phase? So in the second phase, he says it moves from being a, a, a sacramental positive representation into something that's an evil appearance. And he says that it, he uses two interesting words. He says it masks and it denatures reality, this evil appearance. And he calls it, it's of the order of maleficence as opposed to the first one with the order of the sacramental. And, uh, and of course, this is, this is talking about the possibility of, of, dis of using um, digital reality in a way which is deceptive. Um, and I, I think, of, you think immediately of the way that digital world opens us up to um, people who wish to manipulate us, to, to um, fake... Um, people who are pretending to be something that they're not uh to financial scams to um uh many malevolent people out there who who have found that digital technology is a way that they can mask themselves they they, they present themselves as something that in fact they're not uh but also sadly uh that it the that it denatures it actually destroys reality in some way it destroys trust it destroys the normal ways that human beings uh, relate to one another. Mm. And I suppose even if it's not done with malicious intent, to use our kind of deep fake Tom Cruise example from the beginning, you know, it's just someone messing around. He's not trying to seriously scam anyone or anything like that. But you can't interact and engage with the actual human being because he has masked himself with Tom Cruise's appearance. Um, and so if I try to interact and engage with that, I'm I'm not interacting with the real Tom Cruise, but neither am I able to interact with the actual human being behind the deep fake. And so it's distorted and ultimately, you know, to use Baudrillard's word, denature, destroyed the, the actual human 
interaction which might be possible whereas as you saw in phase one simulation and digital technology can actually enhance human relationship when done in a kind of as we said before a sacramental way yeah that's right and of course it's very subtle isn't it the way that you can move from an accurate representation into something that is distorted so for instance it's very simple on zoom you can improve your appearance you know you just click a on a box and the software will smooth out the wrinkles on your face and make you look more attractive or you can change your background or you can change the way your voice comes across and all these are suddenly you're moving from being the accurate the accurate representation of who I am to to actually creating something that's a fantasy that's that's a I, I'm manipulating you because I'm trying to present myself in a in a more attractive way mm. and it seems sometimes there's almost a kind of inertia within digital technology which pulls you towards greater and greater simulation you know you people join zoom just because they you know they need a pragmatic way of speaking when they can't physically meet but suddenly it tells you well if you just click this button you could smooth out your pause and you click this button and you can rep you can improve your background so it looks a bit nicer and then what if there's and it kind of almost like sucks you gradually inch by inch almost in, in micro steps away from the authentic and the real towards something of greater sim- simulation exactly and I, and I and you know if you go back to the online services and so on i'm sure there's a huge pressure on churches presenting themselves in online services to try to use the trickery and the tools of the trade to give a much better impression uh, much slicker much more professional better lighting um, more just throw in some synth pads on your worship music <laughs> so it's not just a one person in their guitar in, in a guitar in their spare room yeah so it's it's it is, it's quite it's subtle isn't it but the, you can see this suddenly morphing into something that is that is masking and denaturing then you go on to the the his third phase and he says in the third phase the simulation masks the absence of a profound reality so now it's not that it's taking something there and and twisting it it's now being used to mask the fact that there's nothing there he says it plays at being an appearance it is of the order of sorcery and as i was thinking about this and said how how does that apply in this world then i I was thinking that's probably you could apply that to an emotionally intelligent chatbot quotes you know to something like alexa that um that comes across as being terribly sympathetic and caring or sassy and funny and sarcastic or however you want it to be. But actually there's nobody there. It's completely fake. Uh, You're not having a relationship with anyone. There's not a real friend. There's nobody there who cares about you. It's simply clever programming. Hmm. And you can see with Alexa as an example, like we are, you know, they've given uh the software a name a human name and a female voice and you know and even a modicum of personality because it creates a simulation of i'm not just talking to lines of code in a server somewhere in north america connected by the wi-fi to this box in my room but i am in even if we we know we're not we're talking to a human being but it creates such a they've decided amazon have clearly figured out that that people will engage with it more if it feels more human if it if it layers on a kind of veneer of of humanness over what is completely absent and and totally machine-like. That's right. And again, you know, the technology is improving all the time. So there's a a company called Affectiva, um, which was set up out of MIT and using sophisticated AI to to try to uh, mimic uh, emotional intelligence. And um, I, I... came across a quote from the Affectiva CEO who said, what if you came home and Alexa could say, hey, it looks like you had a really tough day at work. Let me play your favourite song and and also your favourite wines in the fridge. So help yourself to a glass. And I I think this is going to come more and more. These uh, chatbots and uh, simulated uh, persons are going to become more and more, quotes, emotionally intelligent and sensitive and will pick up the nuances from your voice and say you know you're obviously having a tough day and 
you know, and 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 I really care about you, and uh, you know, are, are you getting enough exercise? And it's all this kind of simulated friendship, but it's actually what Baudrillard would say is is it's masking the fact that there's nothing there. Hmm. Um, and the, another application of this that's already started rolling out is is for um, kind of online psychotherapy, online counselling. Um, and there are various services, some some that I believe are free and some more sophisticated ones which you have to pay for, where people who are experiencing kind of mental health crisis or anxiety and depression, um, but they're on a waiting list to see an actual human psychiatrist can in the meantime access uh, a kind of chatbot who will say, how are you feeling and how does that make you feel? And do you think that's connected to your mother or whatever other people counselors will say and it's and it's you know a bit of programming which which gives people the illusion that they are talking through their problems and kind of uh, having a bit of therapy but actually of course there's no one there no one is listening no one actually knows or cares about who they are um and what's remarkable and i think really interesting and challenging to me is that there is some evidence that that people gain benefit from these and that that you know self-reported kind of measures of well-being improve when someone has an opportunity to spend uh, a few hours a week maybe in with a with a with a chatbot therapist and then that raises all these ethic questions of even if they're not quite real are they better than nothing that's absolutely right and again this is a real growth industry um the use of mental health apps on smartphones uh, and because of course so many people have smartphones across the world but don't have access to a mental health professional, a counsellor or a psychiatrist, psychologist. So it's not surprising that uh, the idea that, you know, you you can have um, this thing on your phone which which says the sort of things that a, that a counsellor would say um, is an idea whose time has arrived. And, and as you say, there is some evidence... Um, Particularly, I think, in, in where as a kind of daily uh, CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy program that um, sometimes initially set up by a human psychologist, but then it means that every day your smartphone will speak to you and remind you what you need to do today and, and ask you how you're feeling and, and so on. So there definitely is a, a role for these uh, programmes. And, and I think... Um, I, I don't want to say absolutely these are evil and, and deceptive, but I, I think I want to draw a distinction between where we're using these programs as as a definite part of therapy for for a disease for somebody who has a mental health disorder, and it's a, and it's it's a form of therapy, and 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 contrast that with this is just normal everyday living. This is how this is how you should live your normal life uh, when you are not. Uh, in an acute mental health crisis or or battling with some some problem I mean you said something interesting to me just before we came on air which is that you know in many ways lots of people kind of long to have that kind of intimate relationship with someone who at any time of day is accessible to for you to kind of tell them how you feel you know the whole the kind of very famous 2013 film her um starring uh, joaquin phoenix is all about that about a, a kind of lonely depressed isolated man who is given a a, a an artificial intelligent uh, artificial intelligent kind of chatbot in his ear and he kind of eventually falls in love with her and you were suggesting that really this is tapping into a longing that we all have for that kind of friend who's closer than a brother, which might even be related to, you know, in some sense, a, a simulation of the Holy Spirit. I think that's right. It's a very, very deep longing. I, I, when I watched that film, I had this sense of poignancy and thinking, wouldn't it be wonderful just to have this friend who wherever you went, they were constantly there, they knew all about you and they were always available and they were... And then I realised that was some kind of simulacrum of, of the Holy Spirit, and it, it is a deep longing that is in the human heart. And the danger is that because we're in a, a society where there's a great deal of relational breakdown, and there's a, people find human relationships difficult and messy, and complicated, and there's a, a great deal of loneliness. 
um, that, that the technology seems to provide a fix. It seems to provide a solution uh, that, that instead of this messy, difficult business of trying to build a relationship with another human being who I don't really understand, I've now got this ideal person who's always available, who's always friendly, who's always interested in me, who always thinks I'm great. And, and, and that's a much better, better way to be. And this this comes in a context. We don't have time to go into any detail, but um, there's an iconic book called Bowling Alone. Um, I believe is it by Putnam, something like that, uh, from the 90s. And 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 it's a kind of a work of social science, which looking primarily at America, but was kind of sketching out how in the Western world there's just been a kind of tailing off of communal activity. Um, and you know, notably in the title, people you know now quite often go bowling, uh, tempin bowling by themselves. And and it was kind of basically explaining that we live like in a, almost a, a society that's in a crisis of loneliness and a, a lack of human connection people you know single person households are skyrocketing and and people are in fewer clubs and societies and and that kind of stuff and and all this technology arrives in a situ- in a society which is yearning for for meaning and for intimacy and connection and yet has never been more disconnected that's right uh, just to finish the Baudrillard uh, progression, his final stage was what he called the stage of simulacrum, when um, the simulation breaks free from reality completely and it's, it's, it simulates itself. And um, it, this is still largely in the field of science fiction, isn't it? But um, I, I remember there was a whole furore about some research which Facebook did in 2017 when... They were experimenting with AI bots that were um, communicating with each other and they were designed to negotiate with each other. And the bots were programmed to experiment with language in order to see how that affected their ability to negotiate. And it was reported that over time the bots seemed to invent a new language to communicate with each other. And that there was then sensationalist media coverage that they were trying to speak in a secret code to outwit their human masters. And I think all that was just hype and nonsense, but it but it does illustrate a sort of way in which once you have two bots having a conversation with each other, supposedly a human conversation has now completely lost contact with with reality. And I you know, and I think interest in virtual reality, this idea that you know you put your headset on, you put your head, your headphones on, you you just go into a completely different world. You can be whoever you like, you can experience whatever you like. Um, we're now in a pure simulacrum, rather like the Matrix. Hmm. And I mean, as you say, it's it's it, we're not really there yet, but certainly the kind of core principles of machine learning and and neural networks is very much that the human programmer inputs data and then just kind of lets the program run and through like billions of replications these computers teach themselves skills and learn things that the human programmer at the other end hasn't can't fully understand and and i can certainly see you know i'm sure again not an expert on this but i'm sure ai researchers are thinking about what happens when you you know link up two neural networks together and see what they kind of create together and so we're certainly on the cusp it feels like of of that of something that approaching Baudrillard's pure simulacrum where there is no human involved it's just machines talking to machines creating their own reality that's right and I, I think again a lot of this is science fiction but these are themes which will continue I think to be explored If you just step back and then you think about this from a philosophical point of view, and I've had these conversations with some of my academic colleagues and uh, who are sort of uh, hardline physicalists. In other words, you know, they believe that reality is nothing but physics, it's nothing but stuff, and that the human brain is simply a collection of cells and wiring and human consciousness is just a sort of some kind of emergent property of very complex wiring circuits. If, if that is your worldview, and then you have to say, going back to that original question, if this is a simulation but it makes me feel good, does it matter? I, I think you're quite hard-pressed in a physicalist world to say, yes, it does matter, because surely 
you know, inputs are inputs, stimuli are stimuli, and whether these inputs, my sensory impressions, they're coming from a real human being or they're coming from a brilliantly simulated human being, does that really matter? Because in the end, it's sensations, it's stimuli, it's impressions and so on. And and so I, I think from a physicalist philosophy, it is quite difficult to see why authenticity matters as opposed to simulation. Whereas, you know, it's pretty clear that if you take the orthodox Christian understanding of the nature of reality, uh, you, you get a very different perspective. You get a, this idea that, that core embodied reality, the, the incarnation, when God himself turns himself into the physical space-time embodiment, uh, is saying something very significant about core, physical, touchable reality, as opposed to the simulacrum. I mean, it strikes me, we mentioned at the start that Baudrillard was kind of part of this wave of postmodernism in philosophy, and it's kind of revolves around this idea of kind of questioning and playing with is there a single truth? Is there a single reality that we have access to? Are we all kind of telling stories? And fundamentally, I believe Christianity is a profoundly anti-postmodernist faith worldview that says, no, there is a real God. There is a single truth. Um, and you saw that, you know, just, just struck me, you know, there was some several kind of the, of the early heresies that were around in the early church in the first few hundred years after Jesus we're looking at the nature of Jesus and the incarnation and coming up with ideas of, uh, well, maybe it was just, um, it was, it was, uh, it was, he was a God who had the appearance of a man, but Jesus wasn't actually human. It was just a kind of a, a mask that he put on. Um, or maybe it was, uh, he was just an ordinary man who at one point, maybe at his adoption kind of put on some divinity before letting it go again. And, you know these ideas of simulation and kind of questioning reality and is there a what what's masking and unmasking and actually orthodox christianity co coalesced around the idea that no that jesus wasn't a simulation it wasn't a it wasn't a magic trick he was a truly fully human and at the same time truly fully divine simultaneously yeah and so it's fascinating to me that um the relevance of trinitarian orthodox theology uh, suddenly it has a new resonance uh, in in this age of digital simulations and i find it interesting that very many people in our society have a kind of intuition that there's something deeply creepy and, and wrong about this AI, ai simulation of human relationships but they they don't really have a very robust philosophical or theological reason as to why it might be wrong. Whereas I think that the, the Christian theology does give this philosophically coherent understanding as, as to why embodiment matters, why physical reality matters, because God himself has endowed it with eternal significance and has even indwelt it himself and being being you know as, as you say the early church fathers came up with this formula that jesus was fully human and fully god one person in in two natures and that says something very profound about what it means to be human um and i, I think also it's interesting isn't it that, that in the christian uh, narrative and in, in the bible that evil has this aspect of the counterfeit, that mm. that evil is never genuinely creative, never genuinely original. All originality, all creativity belongs to God. But what evil can do is it can counterfeit the good. It can counterfeit the beautiful. It can counterfeit the true. And, um, and therefore, a, a, a deep sense of the need to distinguish between authenticity and counterfeit uh, goes to the very heart of the Christian understanding of the world. And you see that throughout the biblical narrative in, in Genesis, the serpent, the personification of evil, uh, is is a deceiver. 
you know, is questioning God, is telling lies, is planting untruths in Adam and Eve's minds, and all the way through to Satan's encounter with Jesus in the desert in the Gospels. Again, it's the same thing. He's the father of lies. It's it's not about setting up uh, something brand new, but it's about masking and twisting and distorting what God has actually said. Did God really say? And um, are, is it not this? And, and and kind of probing and questioning. And And I think that does say something about how Christians we need to be really thoughtful and watchful about how stuff in our society and our world is distorting and denaturing and masking actual reality um yeah lots to think about there i think so and, and so you know maybe as we draw it to a close i think it is this challenge of, of finding the difference between the sacramental of saying yes there's a lot of here which is actually sacramental and there are ways in which and maybe even the smartphone counselor who is reminding me every day uh, and giving my CBT is in some sense sacramental of a human counsellor. Uh, it, it is in is it has a positive sense, but it, it's finding that where it sort of cuts across from the sacramental to the evil to the counterfeit, and ultimately to the simulacrum. Well, let's draw it to a close there. Thanks, John. That's been a really fascinating conversation and lots more threads we could unpick. Maybe we'll come back to it in a future podcast. But until next time, I'll see you soon. Thanks a lot. Good to chat. That's it for this episode of Matters of Life and Death. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do share it with friends or on social media. It can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or all other major podcast apps. As always, don't forget to check out John's website, which has plenty more resources to read, listen to, and watch on lots of the things that we've talked about in the podcast and much more besides. You can find it at johnwyatt.com. That's J-O-H-N-W-Y-A-T-T.com. And if for some reason you'd even like to follow me online, I'm at T.S. Wyatt on Twitter, and you can find some of my journalism at tswyatt.com. You can get in touch with us by emailing mattersoflifeanddeathpodcast at gmail.com or just send me a tweet. We're always keen to hear from listeners, especially if you have a question to ask, a topic you'd like us to explore, or a news development to respond to. The music in the show is, as always, by Daniel Birch. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you again next time. <laughs>